Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and this week we have a special guest who is a musician. Zama Ripa is a liberty, peace, and love-minded singer-songwriter musician currently living in Miami, though he is from Los Angeles, California. He's toured and performed the world over as a solo artist and in multiple stylistically diverse bands. He is also a friend, neighbor, son, brother, husband, father, and a Christian. His new record, American Soul, is currently available at all digital stores worldwide. Zama Ripa, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Love your show. Well, thank you. We, uh, we, we do our best. And uh, what we're going to do with some of your work today is we're actually going to play uh, some clips of some of your music. Thank you for letting us do that in this episode. And so listeners throughout the episode, you'll hear some clips from, from his music. But let's just say right at the outset, like where are some popular places people can, can listen? So the, the record is available at every digital store worldwide from iTunes to Apple. You should be able to find it anywhere. And if you can't, Go to my website, IamZamaRipa.com, and there's information there. All right, and we'll put a link on the show notes page as well. I, I heard you on Apple Music, and uh, so I get to yeah, I subscribe to that and was able to find you there. It was pretty easy to do. So uh, let's uh, get a little bit of your bio. Like I kind of read, you know, a little bit of the basics, of course, to kind of introduce you. But how did you, how'd you get into music? Um, have you always been a libertarian, or did that come about through a series of processes? Uh, a series of processes, although my first instincts and first memories were very libertarian oriented. My first memories, I think a lot of most human beings can say this, are, are my first memories are tied to music. I remember songs, uh, songs evoke uh, smells and memories and feelings uh, that, that we first have at three, four years of age. So there's always been um, a connection to that so I first got into music yeah, in the church. I was raised in the Christian church. My parents were both Baptists. Um, so my first musical memories are singing in the choir and uh, doing the church plays. And like I said earlier, being a human being, most of our memories are tied to music. Music is the soundtrack of our lives. And, and uh, every important thing that ever happened in my life, from my wedding to uh, um, the first time I got A's on a report card, it's all tied. There's a song that goes with that. So I, th I think most people can say that. Yeah. I mean, I remember growing up as well, like just, there are a few things that like a few places in my life. And one of them happens to be like a small diner that had a jukebox that people played music. And I remember several country songs coming from that jukebox and it's just kind of part of my childhood. So, you know, music's a really important uh, aspect. When did you, when did you become like a songwriter uh, performer? So I, I've always written since I can remember probably middle school, I've always kept journals and uh, sometimes it's just little things dotted down. Other times it's poems. Other times it was in song I did play piano as a kid, and then that moved more into guitar. 
and uh, in high school I did chorus and, and uh, this and that, but I was never never took uh, formal instruction in the guitar. But it's, so I've been writing forever, uh, off and on through the different things I've done in in my life. Okay, so that's your music, you know, your music development, uh, you know, kind of origins there. Uh, when did you call you, start calling yourself a libertarian? That's tied to that. You know, that's uh, I said. I've always had uh, libertarian sensibility since I was a kid, and always a strong sense of justice. And I think part of that comes from nature and nurture. Like I said, my parents were. Um, we moved around a lot. Also, my parents were in the military, so both of them were in the air force. So we moved around a lot. The libertarian, which is somewhat ironic, the libertarian sensibilities came somewhat from feelings of justice and probably the, the things that we learned in, in, in church, how to conduct yourself. Uh, but I remember specifically when I really had an eye-opening moment, it was in middle school and we were being uh, taught Henry David Thoreau in English class. And I believe it was Walden Pond, but I was curious, uh, curious about him, seemed like a, a very interesting person. So I remember going to the library, this is seventh grade, and looking up more on a uh, um, on Thoreau, and I came across civil disobedience, and then I, you learn that uh, he was jailed because he refused to pay taxes. He didn't want his taxes supporting war and slavery, and the like. And I, and that hit like a like a bolt of lightning. Uh, first of all, it seemed so radical at the time. So that was to learn that, and that, and that's the stuff we weren't being taught in school. You know, we didn't learn about things like that, or the Federal Reserve, or a lot of other things we don't learn about until we really jump into libertarianism. Um, but that was the first time I thought, wow, that's radical. And, and what does this mean? So that kicked open um, the door, so to speak. And during that time, you know, during Thoreau's life, that was the big battle over over um, slavery. You know, that was around the time of the Civil War. And so that opened the door to uh, learning about him, led me to Lysander Spooner, other abolitionists, and just a, a different way of thinking about liberty. Because, of course, we're raised, at least we were when I was in school, we're raised, you know, talking about the, um, the sensibilities and the philosophy of the founding fathers. So it's all liberty to some degree or another. Uh, but going the Thoreau route and looking at those other other influences was was very radical so that that's when it started and it grew over the years it developed more uh libertarianism developed more especially after 2001 for me also like i said it was always on the radar i never looked deeply or studied it deeply but after 2001 i started listening to somebody that a lot of us listened to and that was ron paul and i, I he was always on the fringe for me i didn't i don't say that in a uh, a bad sense, but he was always on the fringe because it, you'd always hear him pop up, but I never really knew much about him. Always seemed like a great guy, a solid guy, but I, I didn't really immerse myself in the philosophy. But after 2001, um, I started listening more and said, wow, that, that's, that sounds dead on. I, I agree with everything that guy just said and uh, whether it was a debate or whatnot. And then that led me at the same time, I decided to go back to school and I was studying economics. And so, it was kind of serendipitous that led me to the uh, the Mises and the Hayek and the Rothbard. Again, figures who aren't really aren't taught in formal education. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, that's interesting. Like your your gateway experience was through to, to libertarianism, or the idea that there's something immoral about what the state is doing. 
uh, and funding it is, was through Henry David Thoreau. Yes. Yeah. And also, you know, like I said early, um, my parents were in the military, so there's a lot of structure there, ironic again. But uh, like I said, they were raising us Baptists. So they didn't work out my family. I come from a broken home, which also informs the art. But uh, they tried really hard to, to give us those values. So not only was I learning the economics and uh, the anti-war stuff and the, the nature of government, but it seems to dovetail perfectly. Um, I had a hunch at the, it, over time that it was dovetailing perfectly with the teachings of Christ. So you have, you know, you have these things converging and, and that that's when it really started to crystallize and become more powerful. And uh, it's almost like a revelation. Just it seemed truthful and honest that uh, intersection. Yeah. You know, I it doesn't surprise me that somebody who grew up in a military family um, would at the very least give lip service to the notion of individual rights and freedom. I mean, even even the most statist Republicans would give lip service to the idea that, you know, we were fighting for freedom. It might be just our freedom, uh, which is kind of what it is today when people argue about America's freedom. But uh, did you did you have any uh, like do you recall as a kid? you know, kind of being in a, a freedom-loving family, even if it wasn't quite libertarian as we understand it today? That's interesting. The sensibilities were there, but also, and maybe given that generation, both my parents, there was a lot of patriotism. I, I, I felt that I would get goosebumps when the anthem would, pl- would played and when the, the jets fly overhead, but, but I think it was more off the moment rather than patriotism. Something always seemed suspect to me. Now I can articulate it. At the time, I just remember thinking it seemed like it seemed a little blind to me. And, and of course, not to disrespect anybody or anything or any institution, uh, the more I think the more the deeper you go into Christianity and libertarianism and economics, you really see um, the, the blatant immorality of that. And you see that that's totally at odds an intention with uh, the teachings of Christ, yeah, and com- and really common sense and any morality, whether whether you're a Christian or not. Uh, one one of the one of the big kickers for me before 9/11 was I was watching. I remember seeing this live. I was very young, but I remember seeing it live, and it was Madeleine Albright. I believe it was 1998 with mm-hmm. Leslie Stahl on um, 60 Minutes, and Clinton was president. It was. Uh, obviously it was after the first Gulf War. And I remember Leslie Stahl asking her, um, and this was a profound moment too, that I'll always remember, um, asking her, so 500,000 Iraqi children have died as a result of U.S. sanctions on Iraq. Is, is that cost, is that, is that worth the price of our foreign policy? And Madeleine Albright, you may have seen this clip. A lot of people. Oh yeah. Have. I know where you're heading. I know what this is. She didn't miss a beat. She said, well, yes, we think it's it's worth the price. That That's appalling. And I don't know how so many Americans or anybody with a heart uh, or a mind can sit there and not be yeah. appalled right off the bat. Can you imagine like the media actually questioning Obama in the during his administration? And, and I mean, of course, they're going to question everything Trump decides. To yes. Do. But like, can you imagine Obama sitting down with somebody and being asked that question? Absolutely not. And in fact, on this note, and I think you'll probably agree with me, um, I think Obama was probably the worst thing to happen to the anti-war movement 
um, that I've ever seen. We remember when he came in office, there was a there's a very radical and necessarily so uh, anti-war movement. He completely it, um, erased that. Yeah, they all and went home. They all went home. They stopped. And they're they're kind of coming back with Trump, but again, they're not even attra- attacking Trump so much for uh, for the war stuff. They're attacking him on other things. Uh, so yeah, I think Obama was appalling not just for liberty, but for our moral conscience as a as a nation. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I actually know somebody who I used to work with, um, and that this person basically said, like the day after Trump was elected, that well, at least now they can go start protesting wars again. Yes. Maybe they just said protesting, but uh, it's possible. I think I'm pretty sure that person said uh, protest against war. And I'm like, really? Like, (laughs) this is where all the libertarians are like, dear anti-war left. Welcome back. Welcome back. Exactly. And there was some great the meme. The meme world got a lot of mileage over those those sentiments. Yes. So true. We could go on and on about that. But yes, it's so true. Yeah. Well, I want to give our listeners a little taste of your music. So uh, what I'm going to cue up here is uh, your song, Live and Let Live. And uh, it represents your life philosophy because it's related to the golden rule. Do you want to give us a little bit of uh, background on the song? Well, yes. So yes, Live and Let Live. I've always felt that way. Like I was saying, I felt that way as a young, as a child before I could even really articulate it through the framework of, of liberty and, and uh, live and let live has always been the philosophy. There was a book I was reading recently. It's called Foundations of Private Property Society Theory by Anarchism for the Civilized Person by Robert Wenzel. He had a small passage in there and on it. It's a live and let live um, uh, philosophy. Uh, that has always been my philosophy. You match that to the golden rule, which is the law of love, which I think Christianity distills down to love your neighbor as, as yourself and love God. Um, but that, uh, it's a powerful, uh, suggestion. It's a powerful thing to say. And again, that pretty much sums it up in that song. That's one of the more explicit libertarian songs. And we can, it touches a lot of, uh, a lot of topics in there. So Thank you for mentioning. So that was the song Live and Let Live by Zama Ripa, who is actually with us here on this episode. And, uh, you know, we're going to queue up another song here actually pretty shortly. And I think it's really interesting. You actually wrote a post-Trump election song about the phenomenon of, you know, basically people not being really happy about Donald Trump being elected. Live your thing. Yes, there we go. Uh, that, that again, that's another great philosophy to live by, obviously. It was some of the some of the lyrics in there. I was watching the news, and the lyrics seemed to just tumble out. Because, um, like we were saying, people seem to have lost their minds over over the election of Trump. Where somebody like you, Doug, or I were sitting, they say, "Hey, this has been going on the whole time. It's not just Trump." Um, 
but the livery thing does uh, come from that. And again, you, we could say that to anybody. I have, I'm a dad as well. I have children. I say that to my kids, and, and I certainly say that to my fellow artists. You got to be true to yourself, and you have to be honest. And that's the only that's the only way to be. There's a line in that song: "You are what you repeatedly do." Again, that comes from the intersection of of Christianity and and economics and uh, libertarianism. Um, and so, yeah, live your thing. Be as honest and, and real as you can, not only with yourself, but with God and, and with everyone in your life. Go, 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 and find out what it means to be free. You're a human being. Go live your thing. Baby, go live your thing. So you've been listening to Live Your Thing by Zama Ripa, who's here with us to talk about uh, his music and his uh, life being a libertarian. Uh, so I have a question for you here that's kind of related to uh, the music that you write. What are some of your favorite topics uh, as a libertarian? Uh, you know, you insert that into some of your music from time to time, uh, you know, you insert that into your music. And so, you know, but when you have a conversation with people and people get into stuff, you know, related to politics and faith and ethics and things like that, like, so what are some of the, the like more fun, like interesting topics that you like to talk about as a libertarian? As a libertarian? Well, I think all of it, of course, uh, we like to talk about all of it, but I think the most important within the context of the intersection of libertarianism and Christianity and economics, again, that's the, that's the three. I think the most important issue that all American and, and the world, but is, we're in America now, and we do have the world's reserve currency and the dollar, I think the most important issue is the issue of money. And I've always thought, wondered what this country would be like if more Christians, as what do the polls say, some 70% of Americans identify as Christians, if Christians looked to the Bible and what the Bible says about honest weights and measure and, and money. Uh, there is a, uh, a mandate, a biblical mandate for honest money. And so I think that is the most important issue. As we know, whoever controls the money controls everything. And when I say money, I mean money as a means of exchange. And as we know, we have a Federal Reserve in the United States. And when your money is distorted, seeing that it's the one thing every American in the world has in common. We're forced to use the same money here. When the money's distorted, all of our interactions are distorted. And that's distilled down. That's the, the truth. Um, one mandate for being a Christian, one of the uh, commandments, do not steal uh, and do not cheat. Anyone looking at our monetary system, we have to admit that it's theft and it's cheating. We can elaborate that on if you want, Doug, if it needs more. I agree with you. I think it's one of the most important issues that people don't really talk about. I've tried to get my left-leaning friends to to take more seriously the printing of money and the the effects that it has on, you know, at first it has uh, bad effects on those who are the poorest in society. Yeah. And, you know, Absolutely. I read an, I read a headline about, I don't know, about an hour before we went on to record this, about something along the lines of, you know, one year after the tax I mean, the headline was clearly biased. One year after the tax scam, uh, the evaluation is that Trump's tax plan is the biggest, the largest wealth transfer from the poor to the rich ever. And I'm yeah. like, wow, what a what a weird way of using the word transfer. But even so, I'm like, if there's any 
sort of policy or practice uh, that the federal government, and I realize that the Federal Reserve is technically a private institution, but I mean, clearly we, we all know that that's not quite the case. Uh, and so I'm like, if there's anything you should be angry about, it should be something like that too. Absolutely. Um, I, I remember as becoming a libertarian, I mean, this was this was like, and, and I have some left-leaning sensibilities and I'm listening to this and I'm like, if you care about the poor, you care about the Federal Reserve, but they won't touch it for some reason. So Absolutely. why is it important that the that honest money uh, is important for society? Well, th- uh, again, th- the Federal Reserve is the sacred cow to the left and the right. But you mentioned the effects on the poor and nothing eats away at the poor and the old, the vulnerable in society uh, like inflation. And it, it's it's a it's a hidden tax. It's theft. Um, I remember thinking this when, who's the football, Colin Kaepernick. I remember thinking this uh, when he did the Nike thing a few month, months ago when Nike touted him. And again, nothing against him or the, the, on, at face value, nothing against what he's doing. But I remember thinking what how beneficial it would be if he would actually go nitty gritty into the details on the mechanisms, the real world mechanisms. Because we can point and shout racism all we want. We never know what's in a person's heart. But uh, there are real world mechanisms which are destroying poor, disenfranchised, vulnerable, vulnerable communities in the United States, and they all come from inflation. Um, well, it reminds me, there's a quote from uh, Keynes himself, the architect of the American economy, and this is very important. I always bring this up, and it's funny you mentioned some of your left friends. I bring this up with both left and right friends. Here's Keynes, uh, as most people might know, or if they don't know, Keynes, uh, Keynesian economics is the uh, dominant school of economics in the United States. You, if you get an economics degree, you go through Keynesianism. Basically, he designed the uh, the Western economies and now the world economies, but it's based on, on inflation and central banking. So this is Keynes, though, early on, uh, around the same time Mises was writing Socialism and some of, some of his other great works. Keynes said this, this is before his system was really used around World War II. He says, Lenin, and he means Lenin, the Russian, uh, the Russian leader. Lenin is said to have declared that the best way to destroy the capitalist system was to debauch the currency. By a continuing process of inflation, governments can confiscate secretly and unobserved an important part of their wealth of their citizens. By this method, they not only confiscate, but they confiscate arbitrarily. And while the process impoverishes many, it actually enriches some. The sight of this arbitrary rearrangement of riches strikes not only at security, but also at the confidence in the equity of the existing distribution of wealth. Those to whom the system brings windfalls beyond their deserts and even beyond their expectations of desires become profiteers, who are the object of the hatred of the bourgeois, whom the inflationism has impoverished, not less of the proletariat. As the inflation proceeds and the real value of the currency fluctuates wildly from month to month, all permanent relations between debtors and creditors, which form the ultimate foundation of capitalism, become so utterly disordered as to be almost meaningless in the process of wealth getting degenerates into a gamble and a lottery. Here's the clincher. Lenin was certainly right. There is no subtler, no surer means of overturning the existing basis of society than to debauch the currency. The process engages all the hidden forces of economic law on the side of destruction and does it in a manner which not one man in a million is able to diagnose. Keynes himself, the architect of this economy, who would actually be appalled at what's been done in the name of Keynesianism, not that I'm saying he's a great guy, 
this is what he said before he sold out to power in the system. Um, he's right, of course, to anyone familiar with central banking and fractional reserve banking. But as we see, what we see now, the existing basis of society being, being overturned, that's exactly what he was talking about. And we can ask why we can go through the reasons why. Well, Keynesian economics, the fractional reserve banking, the Fed, um, when it inflates, which properly means an expansion of the money supply, that's what funds um, uh, the war on drugs, which is which wreaks havoc uh, on every American and also empowers the gangs over the borders. Uh, that's uh, it's this inflation, which um, which funds civil asset forfeiture. Uh, which funds the welfare state, which uh, incentivizes uh, you know people to not get married and and to not work, which in, incentivizes all moral all uh, manner of moral hazard. It pays for the wars that we're engaged in, and it is bankrupting us as as we both know. We could go on, but if we want to look at real world mechanisms which would help the plight of of the poor and vulnerable, the first place we should be looking at is the Fed and, and inflation. As Keynes, as Keynes himself says. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we both talk about our, our left friends and things we bring up. I, I always tell them, like, the first two things we should, you know, get rid of is a for, the foreign policy of occupation yes. around the world and the Federal Reserve. And yes. then, then let's talk because yes. uh, <laughs> to some extent I'll negotiate some of the rest. But that's like a huge like if they want social justice, those are going to be the two largest Absolutely. Uh, ways to get in a huge, make a huge leap in that direction. Yes. And again, I, I, I've said it like you have to, uh, especially friends on the left um, in the Colin Kaepernick crowd. I, I don't take him seriously because he's not talking about these things. Yeah. It, yeah. He's had, he's had years to try to figure out um, what's going on. We can't just say police brutality. We can't just say racism. The, these things are in front of our faces and there's there's great economists out there like Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams who have been talking about this stuff for decades. There's no excuse not to know and not to reach deeper because it yeah. really is simple. Basic economic law is very simple. There's no excuse. None of us have, have an excuse left, right, wherever to not understand this. And also, you probably agree with me on this. We know our leaders understand it. You know, they, yeah. they know. They know exactly what their policies are doing. You know, we talked about Trump uh, a couple of years ago while campaigning. Uh, he was critical of the Fed and he identified exactly what the Fed is doing and, and the, the giant bubble we were in. Well, now he's not so happy because he once, he once he got in office, he wants to do the same thing that he was accusing Obama and Hillary of wanting to do. But these people know, you know, they're not stupid. Obama's not stupid. Bush is not stupid. Trump is not stupid. Despite what the media tells us, they know what their policies are doing. They have to. And uh, again, they, we should know them by their fruits. Well, look at their fruits. Yeah, it's awful. But going back to this, too, not only uh, does the uh, honest economist understand the, the uh, consequences of inflation, we go back to the Bible. Again, it's you know, we have verse after verse. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. He's talking about money. Uh, you shall do no wrong in judgment in measures of length or weight or quantity. Unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. It goes on and on. Um, it, it's in there. It's throughout the Bible. And that's one thing Christians need to uh, need to get back to and understand. You shall not steal. You should not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. That brings us to another thing. Uh, 
child rearing. You know, I, I look at these politicians today from both sides, and I, I wish more Christians would say this too. They do every day exact the exact opposite of what we teach our children to do. And it begs the question, why do we not hold the government and our politicians to the same standards we hold each other to? You know, that's always been been one question of mine, too. They should not be exempt just because they're government. The government should be and this. This is in that the song Live and Let Live. The government should not be able to do anything that we can't do to each other. I'll just keep going on and on here. Now that you got me rolling. Now. You can't go the whole way. Well, I do wanted yeah. to ask you, um, you know, I had, a, I had a question written down here. How do you think Jesus would be treated if he were alive today in America? So I have a song on the record on that. It's called Stone of Freedom. And I was having a conversation with a friend. And we were actually talking about, there was a great article from uh, John Whitehead from the Rutherford Institute. He's a civil liberties attorney. Great site. I, I recommend it. Um, and he puts out a, a article a week or so, but he asked this question and, uh, I was talking to a friend. That's what the song grew out of. I, we went back and forth on it and it's a great question just that they're out there. My, my feeling is I don't think most people who identify with Christians would accept him as Christ. You'd think he was a homeless person, a bum. And, and certainly it would be just like, 2000 years ago, he would be the greatest threat, perhaps, to uh, the government, the federal government. And both Republicans and Democrats alike would probably find a way to kill him or, or keep him locked up and throw away the key. I think of that quote by Lenny Bruce, if Jesus had been killed 20 years ago, this is in the 60s, Catholic school children would be wearing little electric chairs around their necks instead of crosses. Right. Yeah. And that's probably where Jesus would end up nowadays. Uh, if he came to America today, that's a fascinating question to think through. How many people? How many people do you know would recognize him as Christ? Would we even recognize him? You, you know, I mean. Well, I think you would have what you had back then. I think the poor would recognize him first, and a yeah. small selection of the wealthy, depending on, you know, being wealthy in our day versus being wealthy in that day was a little different. There was a different character, yeah. different, different ways in which people became wealthy, and uh, you know. You, Probably, I would say roughly the same. Uh, he would be, yeah, uh, you know, not very recognizable except for to those who uh, were are able to see God working in ways that uh, are unexpected. Yes. So, yeah, no, your song, I mean, I want to play it here. Uh, and it sounds like, you know, you just gave this, the story of how it came about. So this is Stone of Freedom. So that was Stone of Freedom from Zama Ripa. Before we continue on, um, you know, we were talking about one of your favorite topics, you know, money production and the Federal Reserve. Do you have any, do you have any other favorite topics? Uh, you know, that, that that's at the center. I, I love everything. We could talk forever and ever. Uh, just, just ask my wife. <laughs> so, uh, do, you, do you argue with her over like the nitty gritty libertarian stuff? You said she was a libertarian also. Oh, yes. Uh, no, not at all. She's on the same page. She usually just acts like she's listening and I keep rambling. So <laughs> she's, she's a very patient woman. God, she, she's a saint. So, yes. Uh, but we see eye to eye. That's one thing. One thing, my wife and I have known each other since high school. 
Um, like I said, she's a very patient woman and very forgiving woman. Uh, so we're, we're pretty much come to think of it. We're pretty much on the same page with, with everything, which is nice. Um, we're honest with each other. So, yeah, but yeah, she doesn't have, uh, she, she is generally quiet while I ramble on and on. The coffee is working, I say. Uh-huh. Yeah, I uh, but but another topic we've we've touched on is the the, the blowback, um, which of course I think we talked a little bit about that already. But of course the term comes from Michael Schur, the former head of the the Bin Laden unit, which is a reap what we sow observation. And the more we intervene in in other affairs in foreign nations, the more blowback we get in the form of people hating us and wanting to fly planes into our buildings. And also, yeah, well, there's blowback with everything. Um, there's blowback with the inflation that we were talking about. Yeah, earlier. right. But that, you know, there's, there's blowback with everything. You know what you people should. hear when they, when they hear people talk about blowback, like I know Ron Paul talked about this when he ran for president mm-hmm. in 2008, I guess. Uh, and he talked about blowback and immediately everybody was like, Oh, so you're blaming America. Yes. I'm exactly. like, are you, are you kidding me? Like, yeah. You, you know, I, I no, um, that's not what we're saying. <laughs> exactly. There's that famous interchange between him and Giuliani. Uh, yeah. Well, if, first of all, if you look at look at things, you, people can't be that intellectually dishonest. Um, but yeah, the accusation of you hate America. I, I always say to that, I love what America was founded on. It, at, up until that time, it was the best. Um, the best idea in history, the, the Constitution and what the founding fathers intended. Yeah. Um, I shouldn't have to say this, but slavery aside, of course, yeah. we have to say, say that now. Well, Obviously, but when you say the, what America was founded on, it, that's it wasn't founded on the institution of slavery. I know a lot of people on the yes, left want to exactly. believe that. It, it, yep. the, the principles themselves uh, yep. had embedded in them the origins of the abolition of slavery. I mean, yes, even absolutely. up until the Civil Rights era, you had Martin Luther King Jr. using the founding fathers as like his reason for promoting civil rights. And so like if why on earth, like he didn't bring up some new principle that the founding fathers forgot to think about. Yes. And as you, as you know, I mean, they debated ad nauseum about, I mean, that was a hot topic and and most of them were disgusted by the institution of slavery, but yes, um, uh, that was the best document. Going back to that too. It's, it's, it's important. I think to point out that the founding fathers warned against everything we're doing nowadays too they warned against foreign entanglements they warned against standing armies and they certainly warned against central banking except for hamilton who's now as we know is a champion of of broadway so it's interesting to point that out so when when we get accused of hating america first or blaming america first they know i love what america is founded on but to anybody with a heart and soul looking at america today that's not what we what we are doing today is is so far from what we were supposed to do so, yeah, that's, that's an important thing because, yeah, I've been accused of that so many times. Well, and, you know, you, you quote Thomas on your website. You have a quote from Thomas Paine. The duty of a true patriot is to protect his country from its government. Yes. And yes. I think blowback is a really good example of one of the things that governments do to their citizens. Not every citizen knows that, you know, something like 9-11 was the result of blowback for pre uh, for previous actions by the United States. Um, yes, you know, absolutely. there, there isn't always a one-to-one correlation to these things, of course, yeah. but there are, in, in some cases there are, 
And uh, there's been there's been books written about it. Ron Paul is, of course, you know, a proponent of, hey, we got to watch what we do. We can't be the bully of the world. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I saw a meme once. This was probably about, oh, man, good five, six years ago. And it was when everybody was worried about Iraq. Uh, sorry. It was when everybody was worried about Iran. And it said uh, it had a map of the Middle East and it had all of the military bases and it had Iran highlighted. And it says, look, <laughs> Iran is preparing for war. Look how close they put their country to our military bases. Yes, I've seen that. It's brilliant. Absolutely. <laughs> brilliant. It just shows the illogic of people yes. worried about things. And I'm not saying that there, we shouldn't be worried about blowback. I mean, yeah. you know, it's fine to be worried that there will be terrorist attacks and, you know, that we need to prevent that. But one way to prevent uh, something, one way to prevent an illness is by treating the symptoms. And another way is by treating the cause of the, of the illness itself. Absolutely. We didn't learn our lesson. And going back to your, your point there, Bin Laden had said for years, and he still said, the reason we do this and attack you back is because you're here. They don't want us as a holy man. We're a holy man. Um, again, Bin Laden spelled it out for everyone, um, the reasons why they hated America, as much of the world is doing now, and it's because we intervene. You know, I, of course, the world's not a perfect place, and people are still going to hate you no matter what you do. But when when bin Laden comes out and says those things, he also predicted a, a death by a thousand cuts, uh, which is working. And that meant um, his, his goal after 9-11 wasn't to defeat uh, the United States militarily, but to kill us by draining our economy in, with, through the debt and dragging us, keeping us engaged in an endless war that we can't win. And now, you know, when 2001 happened, what we were five trillion in debt and now we're 23 trillion in debt. And Trump just signed off on what a nearly a trillion dollar defense Orwellian named defense, uh, <laughs> which it's more of an offense bill. But um, we, yeah. we still haven't. We're still not listening to, uh, to the rest of the world on that. And, and uh, no, are we saying they're better or greater? Or any? No, of course not. We're just to me, it makes perfect sense. We got attacked. Oh, why did they hate you? It's like. It's like with our children. One of them complains that the other one uh, threw something at them. Other, well, why'd you do that? Oh, because I threw something at him. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, the It's funny to me that my children actually admit it when that happens. I'm like, so you don't understand the relationship? You slapped her, and therefore she kicked you in the shin. Yes. I'm like, yeah, but blow, she kicked me in back. the shin. I'm like, well, <laughs> that's a great point, Doug, because it's 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 interesting once you have children, you see all these. Uh, these very simple con the concepts that we as adults miss and kids, not only are they more honest about it, but it's so simple to them, you know? Right, um, right. On that note, but that, that's a blowback. On that note, my daughter was incensed um, a week ago. I was watching the news and something on Yemen came on. And uh, she's nine, my daughter. And something on Yemen came on. And she said, what, what's going on there? So I talked to her a little bit about it. And, and um explained uh, the U.S.'s role in that and that our tax dollars pay for it. And um, the look on her face, not only was she emotionally devastated looking at the photos, and I, she didn't see, you know, the worst of the photos, but you see children starving. It's it's awful. Um, and she looked at me like, Daddy, why aren't you doing anything about it? And that when you get a moment like that and you see those kids over there, that's – that that's just that's when it really sinks in. And I just I look at 
other Americans. And I just wonder why are we not doing more about that? So, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. The kind of things that we can't focus on one, because it might be kind of difficult to yeah. feel like there's any headway in it. I mean, I, yeah. hope, I hope those of us in the Liberty movement are moving the ball toward yeah. the goal of getting more people involved, especially in the kinds of things that are related to war uh, and, yeah. you know, that, that are literally aggressive things happening by our government. I mean, we could talk about the inadvertent things that government, yeah. you know, causes that are bad for the poor or bad for the yeah. middle class or whatever. But like there's there's actual proactive things going yes. on that we can be outraged about uh, as well. Beyond the speculation, be beyond the conspiracy and speculation. Yeah. That's so true. But but again, we, we will have to, you know, I wish everybody had to answer to, to children of the future on, on what we're doing like that, because that really brings it home, I think. Um, big time. Well, I want to play your song Blowback. So we just kind of talked about that. And we're going to let that be the the uh, the lead out uh, for the episode. I just want to thank you again, Zama Ripa, for being with us for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. I love what you do. I love what um, what what the organization does going forward. I just have one more thing to say, and it's the importance if we need to get out of this, because we probably know there's going to be more turbulent times ahead. We need love. We need grace. We need mercy. We need to take care of our friends and neighbors. It starts horizontally, but we can't forget we've, we've got to be live by the golden rule. That's the only way out. Uh, politics is not the answer. Uh, we don't have all the answers, but you know, because it works horizontally in our communities and our families, it's got to start with love and grace and mercy. And we need to apply those same principles to our government. Amen to that. Great way to go out. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Doug. Have a good day. Who's got the biggest bombs dropping across God's good earth? Who started all this death, destruction, and hurt? It's no secret who they are, masters of war, but who's paying for it? Who's got malware worms hacking the whole wide world? Who's behind such fearful symmetry, trouble and toil? The CIA's been caught red-handed inside everybody's door, but by whom is the cost borne? Twice, that's how the story goes. Once with our taxes, two times with our souls. And where this all goes, everybody should know. You better believe it, boy. We reap what we sow. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Libertarian Christian Podcast.